Hello. Uh, we're recording this podcast in Canberra, Australia. We would like to begin today by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, the traditional custodians of this land on which we are recording this podcast today, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. The criminal justice system applies to everyone. However, on this podcast, we would like to acknowledge the ongoing disproportionate treatment of police and the criminal justice system towards Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The relationship between the state and Indigenous people is far from ideal and we hope to use this platform when appropriate to engage and promote discussions around this area, focus on how to move towards the ideal situation slash relationship. All right. Welcome to the second episode of the podcast. Um, today, we are very happy to have Dr. Meredith Rosner with us. Uh, both of us have been students of Dr. Meredith. Meredith. Yeah. So um, I think we have both attended CRIM 1001 as part of our Bachelor of Criminology. And going through Meredith's um, bio on the research, the website, it's a, it's a really long list of... Um, achievements Meredith has has gotten. So Meredith is currently Deputy Director of the Research School of Social Sciences and a Professor of Criminology at the Center of Social, Social Research and Methods at ANU. So um, Meredith has a lot of publications and a lot of projects and has many interests as we would delve into later. I think for today we would we would be more inclined to hear about um, Meredith's research in in virtual courts and restorative justice as from the websites. We can see that uh, Meredith has published many many pr- articles, publications and even a book on like restorative justice. So I think to start the conversation off, we can ask Meredith how um, she actually came to start in the field of criminology and why 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 criminology sure yeah thanks thank you both so much for having me here today and it's really nice to see you um after having you in the classroom and i i actually do just want to start by saying that it i do teach the first year you know intro level 1000 level course and and i just want to stress again how much i love teaching that course because it actually keeps for me, it helps keep criminology alive. You know, criminology is like a discipline that's changing. And especially when you do research in a very particular area, you kind of get stuck in like that way of thinking, right? <laughs> and that particular topic. But because of students like you who push me every year, um, it kind of helps broaden how I think about the discipline. So um, thank you guys for having me on. And thank you for being, you know, such an exciting group of crim of criminology students that like really shows to me how the discipline's alive. Um, but yes, so how did I get started? Um, I, like many people who work in criminology, didn't actually study criminology as a student um, to start. There was no criminology degree when I was studying. Um, my undergraduate was in the US and I studied sociology. And I had some experience um, as a research assistant. I kind of learned a little bit about research methods. Nothing to do with crime and justice, though. I did a research project on um, teenage pregnancy and and kind of longitudinal study of of teenage pregnancy. But um, when I graduated from uni, I knew I was kind of interested in like social justice, in social science, um, and in, in research. And I was very lucky to get a job 
um, in the restorative justice area. I hadn't studied criminology at all. Yeah. I had I didn't even know what restorative justice was, but um, I got a job as a very entry level, low level. I was you know 21 years old as a research assistant. Um, on a very large randomized control trial of restorative justice taking place in the UK. And what that was was a kind of landmark study that I probably we probably taught in, in CRIM 1002, um, which was a, a big study in the early 2000s that um, tested the effectiveness of restorative justice as delivered by the police. And so what my particular job was, was really just like the assistant to the police. So the police were, um, they were trained as police officers. This was in London. Uh, and their job was full-time. They were out of uniform. They were full-time restorative justice facilitators. And my job was like anything that they needed. So I'd go with them. Um, to they do a lot of home visits to the houses of people affected by crime, victims and offenders and family, to talk through the event, to talk about the impacts, and to talk about the possibility of a meeting. Um, I would do just like general clerical work for them. And also during the restorative justice conference when it happened, my job was just to like be a support person. Like I often, sometimes I would like, people would show up for a conference with babies and they didn't want the babies in the room. So my job became babysitter or my job was getting coffee for people or my job was whatever. And um, I learned a lot in that year, in, in those, it was two and a half years. Um, and that was before my PhD, and that's kind of what made me really learn. So I learned about restorative justice on the job yeah. and criminology only after that, really, yeah. <laughs> um, as a discipline. And I decided that I wanted to do my PhD in, in restorative justice. And in particular, what really struck me was that, you know, these are restorative justice, you know, they involve very intense emotional encounters, right? These are meetings, face-to-face -face meetings for victims and offenders of often serious crime, often people who have been profoundly impacted and it's the type of justice interaction that you don't doesn't, you don't have anywhere else. It's nothing like what happens in court. It's nothing like what happens anywhere else. And there wasn't really much of a um, kind of theory understanding like how that works or why that works. And the police officers who worked as facilitators, when they'd come back from, um, and this was in England, right? So when they'd come back from working from a conference, they, everyone would sit around and like have cups of tea together, right? Because you just drink endless cups of tea, and or the police did at any point. And the police would, um, you know, they'd all gather around and they'd say, oh, how did it go? You know, because they were so emotionally invested in it because there's so much work that goes into making it. And the police officer who was the facilitator would be like really tired and kind of deflated. And they would say, yeah, yeah, it was really good. It was really, really emotional which is like not the kind of language you hear police officers yeah. say, right? Yeah. They, and everyone else in the room would be like, yeah, yeah. And they all knew what emotional meant, but they never defined it. They just, it, there was like an implicit understanding. And so that's kind of the work that I sought to do in my PhD work and subsequent work after that was trying to unpack what, like the emotional dynamics of this kind of interaction where people go from emotions of like really bad emotions of anxiety, of shame, of fear, of trauma to potentially really positive emotions of like solidarity and interconnection and healing and forgiveness uh that's a really profound shift and so that's kind of how I started to get into criminology and then only then did I go back to do my PhD and it wasn't in, in America you do a lot of coursework for your PhD okay. only then did I actually learn criminology theory for the first time right that, that's a pretty, I think everyone who comes into criminolo criminology has like a different, very different background mm. or like similar, but, but different things bring them like yeah. into criminology. A hundred percent. And in fact, I mean, we often say that criminology 
is a um, parasitic discipline in that like it just it's it draws from all over. Yeah, like I mean, I think I mentioned this last week, but how I got into the Bachelor of Criminology was I took uh, Crim One Double O One with Adam, mm-hmm. and after Adam was my tutor, and after one of the tutorials, Adam was just like. Yeah, just apply for a transfer degree and do bat- Bachelor of Criminology along with PPE. And I was like, yeah, yeah, why not? So like, <laughs> well done, re- Adam. Yeah, yeah it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that like so that that I guess there's a, a lot of overlap between criminology and a lot of other disciplines. Like because it's such a intertwined system. Like when you go when you talk about criminal justice system, there's mm-hmm. politics. There's like. So the social side, there's yep. the economic History, side. History, yeah. Yep. So yep. I guess it sort of also makes sense that people get interested in criminology as well. It's quite interesting, though, because there's a real shift. Like, y- you know, I did my degree, my undergraduate degree, yeah, over 20 years ago. And like I said, there was no criminology. as, as, a, as a, it, it, the Criminology existed as a, you know, as a discipline, but there weren't really degrees that you could get. Not very many. There weren't, it wasn't widely available, whereas now almost every university offers a criminology degree. And at ANU, the criminology degree is really, really popular. It's yeah. grown a lot in a really short period, right? <laughs> what do you guys make of that? I think it's just so interesting. And like, everyone just loves a bit of true crime. It's like such a way to like spice up conversations. Mm-hmm. Like, I do organized crime and like, I can suddenly start talking about mafia related things and like everyone <laughs> will have an opinion. And I'll be fascinated by, like, the abnormal and, like, what is going on with our minds. And I think that's what, like, really got me into criminology. Yeah. I think that's what gets a lot of students in, that there's this kind of sensationalist thing about it, about the true crime and the drama and the kind of, um, you know, psychopathology kind of side of it. But then once you study it, you realise that's just a small portion of, of, of the discipline and yet students still... Yeah, there's like when I was researching for po- like criminology podcasts, there's so many true crime podcasts like talking about cases and things like that. But there was so little podcasts available on um, criminologists who are actually working in the field and and doing te- um, not telling stories, but talking about their research and what they are passionate about in criminology. Yeah, that's such a good point. You're totally right. And so that kind of gives a. Uh, an image of what criminology is that doesn't necessarily reflect what all yeah and sometimes these true crime crimes they're like they make up maybe a a really small proportion of the crimes that you would see go through the criminal justice system every day like you may not get a very serious crime that is sensationalized by the media every other day hopefully yeah but but then there's so there's so many other aspects of criminology like the social aspect the Yeah, that I think for me really made it interesting for me. Like, I think one of the things that I found and I remember from the introductory course was when you were talking about the politicization of crime. Mm-hmm. Like, I had never. I'm giving that lecture next week. Yeah, so, because yeah. yeah, because like I I I grew up when it was already how it is today. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really interesting to go back and see how different it used to be perceived. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I'm going to try to connect that to the point that you both were making about about true crime being so popular because you might also remember when I teach through Crim Course, I talk about Durkheim and how important he is again and again and again, right? Um, and um, how, you know, he's really interested in trying to understand how we come to have certain norms and certain cultures and how we decide, like, wh- what our sense of shared morality is, like, who we are as a society. 
And I think that understanding or unpacking why, for instance, true crime podcasts are so popular, like that actually tells us something about ourselves, right? And, and about like ourselves in this moment in 2023, not like us three in particular, but us as, yeah. a, as a society. And that's a really, it's a criminological insight, right? And that's the kind of sociological imagination. And I think that's connected to the political moment that we're in as well, too. So, you know, the idea, uh, I, I just came from a criminology tutorial um, <laughs> where we were talking about surveillance yeah. um, and social media and, you know, the extent to which we're willing to sacrifice privacy for, like, the access and the ease that social media brings to our lives. And this is exactly your point. Like, students that I teach now, you know, live in a moment where it's, like, not necessarily problematized or it's just, it's, it seems like a necessary trade-off because you yeah. have to live your life in yeah. in a technology-saturated way. But that's a real shift from even 10 years ago wow. when I was teaching criminology. Yeah. I guess it's also with the increase in tech that, Maybe that's why you see such a big shift. But then maybe that links on to the first topic that we were going to talk about, which was virtual courts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just, maybe maybe you could give a brief introduction of virtual courts and maybe its aims, how it started. Sure, yeah. yeah. And what I might do, if it's okay with you, is kind yeah. of try to explain how I got from restorative justice to virtual yeah. courts. Because yeah. there, <laughs> is, there is a connection there. It's just kind of like tenuous. So I said that I was really interested in emotions right. and, and the role of emotions in the justice system. And we often think of the criminal justice system or the, or the, law, the legal system as like a place for rationality. And it's a place that's devoid of emotions. And it's a place where we kind of find the truths and find facts. And we don't, aren't clouded by our passions, right? Um, but in fact, if you just scratch like a little bit beneath the surface, beneath the surface, there's all sorts of emotion running through the justice system. And obviously Durkheim's idea about punishment being a place where we express our collective outrage at, at people who violate the law is one example of that. Um, but there's all sorts of ways that emotion pervades how we think about crime and how we think about justice. And I was particularly interested in um, how, uh, uh, I guess, large, uh, simply defined vulnerable people. And vulnerable people could mean people who are in prison, uh, people who are arrested, or, or people who are victimized, or people who are witnesses, or even, you could stretch this a bit to say, anyone who's not a professional who comes into contact with the justice system, so even jurors are in a way vulnerable yeah. because they don't have the professional knowledge, right, about court, um, how they interact with the justice system and how that relationship between, like, emotions and, um, you know, uh, cognition and and rationality intersect, and so that led me in a kind of roundabout way to start starting to do research on juries and like the dynamics of jury deliberation, how yep. juries interact, and it also led me to uh, you know this meandering path where I got connected with a group of scholars who um, are part of what we call I'm part of it now the Court of the Future Network, who are kind of interested in studying innovations in court technology, court design, and court procedure, and so that. I got to know a group of architects who were really interested in building safe courts, and safe courts could oh, be wow. culturally safe courts. It could mean like, um, you know, reimagining what justice looks like. It so like none of the judge sits on top. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And something that we um, and this idea that like social inter or that justice takes place in a space where like uh, 
uh, where like does you know the built environment the procedure and the ritual all kind of meet together right and the ritual dynamics is something that I was particularly interested in and that's what my research on restorative justice and emotion really kind of focused on like how you know I said before I was interested in how we go from emotions of conflict to emotions of solidarity and I think that's because of the ritual dynamics of restorative justice and courts have their own weird rituals right um and you know them from yeah. like watching court tv and 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 what me and my kind of larger network of researchers were interested in is how can those rituals be subverted how can they be reimagined um to be more inclusive um to be less degrading um potentially to be more fair right um and so what we one project we particularly zoomed in on is around the um Oh, I presented on this in, in Criminal 1002 on the use of the dock and how that's um, in, a, in a criminal trial where the defendant sits. So something really yeah. simple like the design of where the defendant sits actually has profound implications for how they experience it, whether they feel like they're part of the proceedings, whether they feel like they're being res given dignity or treated with respect, whether they feel like they can actually hear what's going on, know what's happening. And increasingly, um, defendants are in like a glass cage, right, or an actually secure dock. And so we did research that suggested that that undermined the presumption of innocence. And so when we would go around presenting that work, this was maybe like, I don't know, six or seven years ago, um, well before COVID, a lot of response we would get is, well, okay, well, if the dock is unfair, then, you know, there are instances where there's security issues. And so how do we, you know, how do we provide access, um, you know, how... And the response to that was, oh, well, we can use technology. We can have people zoom in. You know, this is, again, before right. Zoom. <laughs> and we, yeah. can have, we can beam people in from the prison. And that was already happening. Like, for a long time, vulnerable witnesses or child witnesses had been coming to court remotely. And there's all sorts of challenges about that. Like, how do you have, um, you know, multi you have the, the courtroom, and then you have a separate room, a remote room, where a vulnerable person might be testifying how do you imagine? How do you bring those two together in, in one space? So, like traditional virtual course before Zoom was that like you had everyone together in one room, and then you have one person coming in remotely. So right. that person is like in the room because they're a screen yeah. in in the room, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's a really kind of interesting piece of design and like piece of ritual is how to incorporate that person in, in a room. And I actually had that experience because I acted as an um, expert witness once in a criminal trial and right. I testified remotely. So I, so I have the, I know what it feels like to yeah. be uh, remote where everyone else is in the room. And it is really alienating. It is actually really hard to feel present, to feel connected. And I'm an expert, so-called expert, right? Imagine if you're a child yeah. or a vulnerable witness or a defendant in custody. Um, so we had sort of some concerns about it, but at the same time, also seeing how it actually could promote access to justice in all sorts of interesting ways, like in Canada and in Australia, where there's long, dis large distances, um, we could imagine ways that virtual courts or people appearing virtually could like increase their access to justice, like provide more opportunities. And then what happened is that COVID hit, right? right. Uh, so I'd been doing research in this for a couple of years already, and, and I, at that point I was living in the UK, and uh, there was an early trial in like 2017, 2018 of having what we now would call fully virtual hearings. So like a Zoom hearing effectively um, where there's no courtroom anymore. Like, so that's a major change to the design and the, and the ritual and the staging and the choreography and the use of props and all of that. Instead, all of a sudden, we're just meeting in like a completely dematerialized space. And you guys as students, this is how you went to school like during COVID, you know exactly <laughs> what that's like. That brings, you know, opportunities and, and challenges. 
Um, and so we came to be interested in like how justice, like what are the tools that we use to create a sense of justice in in a virtual space where like the usual props that we rely on for ritual, like the judge sitting on high, like like the hammer, the hammer, yeah, <laughs> which actually they don't use in Australia, but you oh. know. <laughs> um, like the um, use of timber in a courtroom, right. <laughs> like yeah. the fact that um, you know we have prosecution and defense sitting in very well-defined spots, and the yeah. public sitting in other well-defined spots. Yeah. All of those kind of like symbols, which come to represent something about what we value. The use of the coat of arms, you know, all this kind of stuff, gets um, reimagined online, and and I guess that. There was a lot of worry that, like, oh, this is going to undermine the solemnity of justice. This is going to, you know, people aren't going to take it seriously. It's, it's the people are going to disrespect the court. But what, what me and my research collaborators were trying to do was probe that a little bit and to see, well, well, how is this also an opportunity to like reinvent the ritual, um, to reinvent how, um, how what it means like what it means to be present, uh, what it means to participate. Uh, and, and also how emotions are used and expressed in a virtual space. Mm, like um, last semester I did a course called Order in the Court. With Lorana, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and I had um, Neil Smith as my tutor. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Um, and like we had to go to court and like even just going in, like it's just everything's very quiet. It's yes. like you feel incredibly anxious. Yes. And like I was waiting outside um, and like I didn't realize that I was sitting across from the offender reading my book for yeah. an hour. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely like a very like, anxious environment. And then going in, like I, I noticed how much it is such a ritualistic experience. Absolutely. Like, yeah. The even the positioning and yeah. how like clearly defined places for the public versus the judge and the, like the the magistrate's assistant and whatnot. Um, and I was just wondering how like that's kind of like a d- deterrent measure. And like, how does that translate as a deterrent measure in the virtual court? Uh, tell me what you mean by um, how the design is a deterrent measure. Like, in terms of the like, fear of going to court. Ah, and yes. Like experiencing yes. Yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So that can be experienced. Oh, I mean, it, d- it deters people from going to court. Um, or it keeps people safer. Kind of deters people from doing anything like committing something oh like yeah from yeah i don't know if court itself if the design of court is a deterrent um there's a fair amount of research that out there about how it's quite an alienating experience like like you described um and and if you have been to court and you know as you guys know because you've been it's just down the road it's very close to magistrates and supreme court anyone can go it's a very formal and ritualized space and as you say um it, first of all, it's you know very securitized, right? So you go through this kind of you know airport-like security. It sometimes it's hard to find your way. You don't necessarily know which courtroom to go to. It's hard to know uh, like the list. You know, if you're there for a particular thing, how do you find? The, how do you access the registry? How do you know which room to go to? Then when you go in, you're not quite sure where to sit. You're not quite sure what's going on. Um, you know, I like to say that even though I have a PhD in this and yet I find it hard to understand like what people are talking about right because they use such a different type of language the law language quote unquote yeah the law (laughs) language exactly Exactly. Um, um, and so that works in a way to make the people who are uh, in the club like who are professionals the the staff the judge the, the lawyers feel like they're part of a community. So that's like a ritual that does a specific thing for them that might be of, 
a positive thing, like make mm-hmm. them feel proud of their work. And, but it also does, it's a different type of ritual for those people who are outside the circle that could be kind of alienating or stigmatizing or, or degrading. And so there's a lot of research about, for instance, people, um, criminal defendants uh, who, for instance, might be like sentenced to prison, but afterwards, because it was so obscure, the language of the court, they didn't even know what had happened. They didn't realize they oh. were being sentenced to prison, right? Okay. Um, I, I don't know if there's any evidence that court, that that experience, whilst we know it's degrading, I don't think it's deterring people from committing crime, um, just like we have fairly fairly decent and robust research that prison isn't actually deterring people from committing crime. But it might be deterring people from having um, like confidence or faith in the justice system. And that's that's... That's a possibility, and there's some evidence about that. And yet, at the same time, there's also evidence, back to my jury research, that people in general have a relatively um, like low faith in the justice system. They tend to right. think that judges aren't like in touch with the public opinion, or or you know they're too lenient, or whatever. But people who served on juries, so the, who have actually witnessed like a case in action, um, have a much higher confidence in the justice system. It's oh. actually doing its job, so that's kind of an interesting finding to make sense of. Yeah, so so as you move, as the society moved to virtual courts, I would say more during the COVID period, just for logistical reasons. Yeah. Did did you fi- did you find that the rituals and the symbols were lost when they tr- moved over to v- virtual courts? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in some ways, they were lost, and other ways, other ways, I think they were reimagined you know right. um and so i for example in the early days of covid you know no one really knew what they were doing right yeah. and, um and so what happened was when courts went online very quickly they adapted in all sorts of weird ways and so for right. example judges would be appearing from home and and i <laughs> nerdily watched a whole bunch <laughs> of like <laughs> hearings because the california court of appeal uh, live streamed all of their oral arguments, oh. and so I started to, and th- that's amazing because, like, yeah. you know, th- talk about access to justice and justice is meant to be seen, to be done, to be done, right? Like, it's th- th- a lot of opportunity for improved publicity, um, improved access. Uh, so I was watching them, and I noticed how judges were appearing from home, and they would have, like, rather than the coat of arms behind them, they would have like a vase of flowers or like pictures of their kids or like their law books behind them or whatever. And each one of those sends a, it's a different symbol sending a different type of image. And on the one hand that, you know, was very humanizing and and it projects the judge in a different way. On the other hand, there's also obviously security risks, you know, involved in that. Um, I think that's like a really interesting subversion, but note that like almost every jurisdiction around the world very quickly, uh, moved away from that towards like having standard backdrops for right, judges yep. with 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 um, and that's kind of an interesting technology shift and I, I'm a bit critical of that only because I I think that with virtual courts, um, I don't think the goal should be to recreate what's in a physical courtroom now because it's just not going to live up to that standard like yep. you can't it's it, it's going to feel different it's a different type of environment and so and we know you know, from all the examples I gave before, that, like, a physical court is, like, a pretty shitty experience for many yeah. people. Like, you don't necessarily want to to recreate that. And so it's kind of an opportunity to imagine ways it could be improved. So, like, I mean, Zoom, for all its flaws, like, everyone is the same size box on a screen. 
that's yeah. that's a bit a subtle but important distinction from yeah. how it used to be with the judge up high, right? Yeah, I guess there's like really small things that we don't necessarily know, but affects the human how we perceive things. Mm-hmm. Like I I remember during one of the tutorials, someone said that the voice, the image clarity and voice cl- clarity really affected how likely it was that someone would be charged guilty. And like it affected the outcome of the... Yeah, yeah. It, it has the potential. And in fact, so to, to plug a little bit of research that I'm doing with my colleague Aaron Newman yeah. in School of Psychology um, and our student, Bethany Muir, who's a PhD student, um, doing work particularly... Aaron's an expert in, in audibility, and they've uh. done research about on how the soundscape of a prison um, or a soundscape of a, of a court could, could change. And in fact, virtual courts might increase the um, audibility, right? They might, might make it easier to hear. Um, Bethany has done research on, on visual cues and backdrops, and she's done a whole series of experimental of experiments where um, in front of you know, hundreds of mock jurors, she's presented different defendants, or the same defendant, but with different types of backdrops. So with like uh-huh. a prison-like backdrop, with a neutral backdrop, with a home-like backdrop, and, and try to, or with a messy backdrop or a clean backdrop, and try to unpack um, how we perceive people with these different types of backgrounds and whether or not it impacts how we think about their culpability. Now that that COVID is more or less, I want to say something of the past. Um, do you see that the virtual courts are slowly going back to in-person courts, or uh, is there a decision of what kinds of cases yeah. can go to virtual court? Yeah, I think we're in a moment now where um, it most everyday court has gone back to in-person, but I think a lot of sort of uh, um, almost all trials have, and, and most hearings have. Um, but but I think there's a real it, it's not gone the technology has not gone away so there's good things and bad things about that so you might inc- uh, for instance uh, New South Wales has invested heavily in video conferencing technology in the prison system and that's because they expect um, that you know they expect its use to increase right yeah. they expect there to be more remand hearings um, remotely more bail hearings remotely more sentencing hearings remotely and on the one hand there's this, you know, evidence that that's actually, you know, some uh, they've done research with people in prison that some people might prefer that because actually there's all sorts of really um, problematic things about going to court, right, um, when you're in prison. Um, and a lot of times it's really routine hearings that might take like one minute or two minutes, right? <laughs> um, and in fact, you know, if you get transported to court from, from prison, oftentimes what happens... Um, is that you know your day might start at four in the morning when you're first kind of woken up and and you have you know you kind of miss your opportunity to have a shower or to do any of the kind of morning mm-hmm. things you get put in a prison van um, really early you know you go through a very intense security you get thrown into a prison into a, a van the van goes around to all the different places where a different all the different courthouses where different people in the prison might be visiting yeah. Canberra's small jurisdiction so yeah. it's a bit. It's less true in Canberra, but this is in a in a bigger jurisdiction, this would be the case. Then you get put in the cells um, underneath the court, and you're sitting in there waiting, and you have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe a solicitor comes and sees you, maybe they don't. And then you get brought up to the cells, oftentimes, and just put to be put in a dock, which is a glass cage where you can't actually hear anything that's going on or know what's happening. Things happen around you for you know a couple of minutes, and then you got that get brought back down to the cells, sit in the cells for a couple more hours, get put back in a prison van. 
then get brought back to the prison. Maybe it's eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And if you're attending a trial, if you're, you know, um, that might the same thing might happen for five days in a row, right? Uh, and oftentimes you might not even be testifying yourself, so you're present there, but you're, but you're not able to actually participate. That's you know, interviews of people who've gone through that find that a really terrible experience, right? You actually, uh, you miss your opportunity to have a shower for five days. Like, that's effectively what that means, right? Um, so you can, so that's a long way of saying you can imagine how participating virtually could be an improvement. And yet at the same time, there's something that makes all of us feel really uncomfortable about something really serious, like someone potentially going to prison, right? And them not being physically present in the courtroom for that, for that moment or for their trial. And I think that there's reason to be worried about that. So back to your question about um, where do I see its use, I think that uh, the, you might say the pointy end of the criminal justice system is like serious crime where people are likely to face a prison sentence. But that's just a tiny drop in the bucket of like all of the court's business, right? Yeah. And I don't think that for that that's the place where we should be experimenting with new technology yeah. at that pointy end with either really vulnerable people or um, you know, people who have potentially lose their liberty. But for all sorts of other matters, criminal or non-criminal, where the court you know, needs to kind of keep moving, then I think virtual courts offer a huge potential advantage. I think, I think one of the questions that, that, or one of the concerns that I have is sometimes we don't really know how tech is going to be changing things so there may not be procedures put in place to safeguard the potential harms of yeah. moving to tech yeah. so and and because tech has experienced such a boom such an increase mm -hmm. sharp sharp increase like how if we w genuinely move to virtual courts would that would like procedures and laws do you think procedures and laws that we currently have is enough to maybe achieve the aims and objectives of in-person courts? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> except but what I do know is that, um, you know, 2023, uh, in general, people yep. are much more tech-savvy because of the pandemic, right? Yep. <laughs> than than they were. You were forced to be. A and so we know now how to navigate over Zoom. And there's this kind of really interesting insight that one of my colleagues, who's a French sociologist, points out, which is, and he's a sociologist of technology. His name is Christian Lecop. And he's kind of researched the history of how we engage with technology over time. And, and his research started kind of like 20 years ago with Skype and kind of watching how we, when Skype first came out and how we Skype with each other and then how we switched to mobile phones and so on. And, and his point is that technology has kind of always um, been flawed. Like it's always been seen as something that can disrupt communication, you know, like the introduction of the telephone, <laughs> um, the introduction of the computer, the introduction of the fax machine, <laughs> the introduction of um, the mobile phone, introduction of the internet has all been, um, it's all kind of made in communication in some ways a bit, in some ways easier, but in some ways a bit harder. Yeah. Uh, and in you know his research in Skype, it's about like the poor quality of interconnection, internet connections back then. So people used to drop out all the time in calls, yeah. or there'd always be a, a lag between audio and video. And what his point is that even though there's always been imperfect technology, we have like adapted the way we interact with each other right. to accommodate for that. And that's yeah. actually like a really cool story that like we've changed how we talk. And how we communicate, even really, and you guys have all done that seamlessly through COVID. Like you all know now, 
you know, to turn your microphone on before you talk, or if you can tell if the other party, if there's a lag between audio and video, you know to wait before you start talking, you know, you know, like these really subtle little things about how to interact, which your peers a generation ago would, it'd be completely alien to them, right? But you have adapted the way you communicate, the way you interact, and so I think that's happening everywhere, not just in courts, but in education, in healthcare, in social life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, um, bouncing off that, like, in Zoom, like, it's interesting how, like, the judge could potentially, like, control who can speak, like, muting people and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, uh, again, judges are kind of glad about that, right? If you interview, <laughs> interview judges, that's one of the things they quite like. And, in fact, in the UK, when I was doing, again, pre-COVID, a uh, series of interviews with judges or, or observed the trainings of judges who were about to be using these fully virtual courts, uh, that was like something they specifically asked for is they wanted that power right, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to, to, to um, control these kind of perceived unruly people. A- and, and when we interviewed judges, they said they, were, they expressed this kind of worry that people would be disrespectful uh, because of the virtual environment and that they would you know, not respect the authority of the judge or the authority of the court. But what's interesting is that we also sat in on all these virtual hearings and observed them all, and we never saw that. <laughs> We never saw, like, that so-called disrespect. Um, you know, once we saw someone stand up to get a pen, like they were writing, and they stood up to get a pen. So they left the screen for a second to get a pen, and they came back with their pen. And the judge was, like, so upset and made a big thing of it. But, it, like, it was, <laughs> like, the, you know, realistically, it w- if that's the only thing, the only thing that actually has happened, then, then you know, I'm not, dis- I'm not saying that it's not a worry, right, um, that there could be disruption. Uh, uh, just another little point about the judge judicial behavior and, and the virtual courts uh, and this worry about power and, and control is that um, something that the designers of the virtual court in the UK did, which was, I think, a very thoughtful design, and these were really good kind of tech designers, and they were imagining, because they wanted to avoid the abruptness of court starting. So, you know, just like a screen flicking on, all of a sudden you're in a courtroom. That's quite yeah. hard to, you know all that from virtual classrooms, right? Um, and so the, what they designed was a what they call a journey into the court. So it was kind of a waiting room. And it was just basically a series of screens that you went through that told you the rules and the etiquette of the court, that told you, you know, ma- advised you on, like, what you should have with you, just kind of basic stuff to help get you ready. And then they had a wait, a virtual waiting room where there was, like, kind of a big countdown timer telling you what time your hearing was going to start. They let you know who else was logged in, like if the other side was logged in waiting, you know, just it's kind of like the waiting room that you sat in, but but virtually. And then when the judge was ready to begin the hearing, the judge would click a button and then a countdown timer would appear on the screen of the users. And it would say, your hearing is about to begin in, you know, 59 seconds, 58 seconds, and so on. So then one minute would happen before the hearing. And, And people we interviewed thought that was, like, they appreciated that because it gave them time to, like, get ready to kind of physically and emotionally and mentally prepare. The judges hated it because oh. um, was what they thought one minute, because judges are used to walking into a room and and when they walk in the room, that's when the hearing starts. You, you know, they walk in the room and you rise and then, right? Yeah. To them, one minute was, like, insanely long. Like, it, you know, they were like, what, what, I'm a judge, you know, like, <laughs> I'm a really important person. I'm going to push a button and then just sit here in silence for one minute waiting for people to like, you know, and it was a really interesting but unexpected finding that for them, they pushed back against that. They wanted that countdown timer to be less because they're used to the timing of a court around 
their schedule and their priorities, right? Yeah, I think it. It to me, it sounds like it. It's good. I don't know. For me, if I know something's gonna happen, like in a couple of minutes, I would rather know that's gonna happen rather than not know that's gonna happen any time in the day after. Mm. So, like having a countdown gives people slightly more peace of mind mm. when when they are waiting for something, especially if it's something serious like a, a court hearing. I think that peace of mind can be beneficial to the people on, who are not the judge, yeah. basically. Yeah. 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 And like when you walk in, like as soon as we, we had to like walk in the room, like you have to bow to the judge. And oh. like I originally went into the Supreme Court um, and like it, the guy had a huge wig on and it was very, very professional and there was like glass around everywhere. Um, and I had such a heavy bag and I couldn't bow all the way. <laughs> I could only like awkwardly like half bow. Um, and then I was like kicked out about a minute later, but um, that was a bit awkward. Kicked out? Yeah. Not for not <laughs> bowing though. Um, I think it's just because I was a student. Um, oh, yeah. But I was like, oh yeah. So much for it being open to the public. Yeah. 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 But I mean, fair enough. It was. It sounded like um, it was really intense. So I was yeah. like, definitely see how like it all works to the judges' schedule and how yeah. Like, yeah. They're so busy. So and like, like it's yeah. true. They are busy. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. not. And but it's it's interesting how that's that's interpreted. You know, that's an in, it's an example of design yeah. and technology that is actually meant to like be more inclusive, right? Um, but but that would be experienced by the judge as like a waste of time. Yeah, and like with the interaction between like restorative justice and like not necessarily virtual courts, but like the virtual space, do you think there's a, a potential for restorative justice to mm -hmm. be done virtually? Yeah, very and, good like, question. And connect. Uh, that's exactly what I asked myself during COVID because restorative justice, just like Everywhere else went online. Um, there was still conflict. <laughs> there was still, pro you know, there was still a need for, for restorative justice. So different jurisdictions, different programs all over the world responded really differently. And so I did a little bit of um, kind of investigation into this, talking to folks who I know just through my kind of international connections who are restorative justice practitioners about how they shifted their practice online. I think there is real potential for it. It, it did happen in, in some cases. In Australia, um, not so much. Mostly the restorative justice units here might have shifted their um, preliminary meetings to a Zoom-type platform, but most of them just postponed the actual conference until, until you could reassemble. But there was also cases in... Um, like in Ireland, for example, one RJ unit that I know of, they would ha they had what they called back garden restorative justice, where they actually sat they actually sat outside, <laughs> which oh. is an interesting inversion with masks on, so they could still meet face to face. Um, but there's also some evidence from Europe about how, especially in case, especially in with um, particularly vulnerable victims, so victims of um, sexual assault and intimate partner violence, um, have been more um, likely to participate in restorative justice when it takes place online and more likely to kind of engage in the process. And on the other side of the coin, young people accused of less serious crime or who plead guilty to less serious crime who are kind of digital natives who are more used to being online are more likely to um, participate in restorative justice when it's held online. Um, in terms of like, do you think everyone is liable for restorative justice? Not liable, but that's not the right word, but like everyone should be able to access it or like only deemed they until they they said you're guilty, can yeah. they? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I think that everyone should, um, I don't think restorative justice is for everyone. 
and or for every type of offense or every type of victim or every type of offender. But I think in many, many, many cases, um, it seems appropriate to let to leave it to empower the people to decide for themselves. Having said that, it is not about fact finding. So restorative justice is about kind of reconciliation and restoration and healing. So if there's a dispute about the facts, so if, peop- if someone pleads not guilty and they're found not guilty, for example, um, or if they don't want to take responsibility, then restorative justice is not the right outlet. Like there needs to be some other way of, of, of resolving that. But if it's you know in, in crime and criminal justice, nine times out of 10, a person does actually plead guilty, right? Um, in those cases, I think that restorative justice, um, sh- people should be empowered to know that that could be an option for them. Yeah. And that actually is relevant to one of my current research projects, which is about restorative justice in response to sexual assault. And that's been a real shift. 20 years ago, uh, it was seen as inappropriate, as um, potentially re-victimizing, uh, as the power imbalances was too great. And so restorative justice was typically not offered um, to victim survivors. But there's been a real shift in the feminist discourse around that, which has been much more about empowering, recognizing there's many paths to justice and empowering victim survivors to like go down the path that's best for them. And that may include restorative justice, it may not. Yeah, I think today we really only could touch on virtual courts and there's so many more questions for like <laughs> restorative justice that we, me, Chrissy and I would love to ask. But unfortunately, we have to start wrapping up and like, just would you like to plug anything like sure you, yeah. so then how about i just plug the virtual court study <laughs> to yeah. keep with that because i'm curious and i'd be very happy to talk to any students that um want to talk this through with me because this is very new and we're thinking it through and this is kind of new research that i'm um collaborating with folks from computer science on which and 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 criminology and law and psychology which is about uh, a kind of an immersive virtual justice. So right. this idea that Zoom is like a stopgap in our technology, right? Um, it's, it's not going to be the way we interact on, online in the future. And it's much more likely to be a more immersive environment. Um, by immersive, I'm, it could mean actually physically placing your image in something that looks like a courtroom. It could be like a virtual reality type space. Um, and it could also involve, if not your image, your avatar, right? Um, so a more of a kind of gaming type model and for all sorts of reasons, including the amount of kind of bandwidth and intercon- internet connection needed right now and in the foreseeable future to bring together lots of different images and sound into an immersive environment. It seems likely that avatars are a way to go. And, uh, you know, just this year, I think it's in Colombia um, in the in South America, held its first hearing in the metaverse using avatars. Yeah. Uh, real, a real trial, <laughs> yeah, and um, so we're really interested in that and trying to understand like what being an avatar means in terms of like how what it feels like to um, um, what it feels like to participate, the role of ritual, uh, and and uh, all of the stuff I've been talking about this past hour around emotion, ritual, participation, vulnerability, symbols, all of so, that in so, the metaverse. So where can they find? you if they want to talk about this oh, or yeah. participate. And, and in yeah. fact, I mean, <laughs> this is a general call because right. we will be, well, what me and my collaborators are doing right now are uh, designing, we're working with some some video game designers right. to design a virtual, an immersive virtual courtroom um, to, with avatars. And we actually want to like beta test it. Like it's just a proof. Right. And, and we actually want students to come in and, um, and try it out. 
right. tell us what it, it tell us what it feels like. <laughs> right. um, so you can con- you can find me on the ANU Crim website. Um, we'll probably doing doing it later this year and into next year. Right. It's an ongoing project. So just for everyone, or like anyone who wants. Yeah, I mean, we don't have the actual. We have a very early prototype of the virtual yeah. court. We ha- we don't have it yet ready for people to. Sounds um, like a cool project. Yeah, yeah I mean, and it's funny because when I when I present, I presented it to like the Australian Bar Association last year, and they were horrified. Oh. You know, <laughs> um, the legal community is horrified. But then when I present it, especially to people who are used to gaming and who are used to living their lives online, they're like, "Yeah, this seems like the natural next step, right?" Yeah. So. All right, we'd like to thank you for your time today, and for sure, we would like to have you back and fi- in the future if, if we were gonna touch more on restorative justice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think this this will have to come to an end for today. Thanks, guys. And thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me.